2006, February 23rd. Today is Lecture 34, The Expanding Universe, which will begin in just a moment. Okay. We've already, we've introduced the modern theory of space, time, and gravity, special and general relativity, and saw one of the surprising consequences of that when we apply it to the universe is that the universe should either be expanding or contracting. The universe should be dynamic in some way. Now, we don't know a priori which it should be, and you should be able to tell this by observations. Einstein tried to stabilize the universe against this motion by introducing a cosmological constant, and by doing that, he inadvertently missed a chance to make a tremendous prediction that no one would have seen coming, namely that the universe is, in fact, expanding. So what we're going to do today is today's approach is going to be somewhat historical in nature because it shows, basically it illustrates very nicely how we go about discovering new phenomena. I should say that the discovery of the expanding universe was in many cases completely unexpected. It's not something that comes out of any first principles except perhaps the general theory of relativity which actually Eddington wasn't that far off. Not that many people understood it. Or more to the point, not a lot of people working practically in physics really understood its import at the time. It was difficult to work with general relativity mathematically. Only a handful of people were trained in such mathematics. And furthermore, the practical applications of what seemed to be a mathematically obtuse theory were not obviously clear. We now know in 2006 the special and general relativity actually have engineering applications, for example, as I've mentioned before, the global positioning system that we use for navigation relies on this. Very rarely does relativity sort of encroach upon the normal world, and so it didn't really encroach upon the minds of astronomers as they came across the phenomenon of the expanding universe. We're going to talk today about the observational basis for the discovery of the expanding universe. Namely, we're going to introduce as the first key idea, Hubble's Law. This is the fact that galaxies appear to be receding away from us systematically in the sense that their recession velocity gets larger as their distance grows. That's exactly what you expect geometrically if you have galaxies in an expanding space-time. Well, a very simple demonstration of what this means by having an expansion. The amount of expansion is parameterized by something we call the Hubble parameter. It's again both the Hubble law and the Hubble parameter are in honor of Edwin Hubble who first observationally discerned it. The Hubble parameter is a measurement of the present day rate of expansion of space-time. It's a measurement of what the factor is by which the recession velocity gets larger with distance. Now this leads us quite naturally to a, to a a new way of looking at the motions of objects and something we call a cosmological redshift. It's a redshift which is not due to the Doppler effect. It's actually due to the expansion of space-time itself and the fact that light has to wave through that space-time. So it gets stretched by the expanding universe as it travels through it and actually becomes redder. It's a longer wavelength. This allows us a very useful tool that actually gives us a way of estimating distances using this measurement of a redshift. A redshift for a galaxy is an observable. It's a very simple observable because it's in many ways independent of distance in the sense that I don't need to know the distance ahead of time to measure the redshift. And in fact, I can turn it around. I can show that the redshift that I measure is, is proportional to distance through Hubble's law and actually use the observed redshift to measure the distance to a distant galaxy when all other methods fail. This allows me to make maps of the nearby universe simply by measuring the recession velocities of galaxies every point across the sky. We've actually seen these maps. I just haven't explained what the observable is. 
that allows me to make these maps. And today we're going to establish that observable by introducing Hubble's law and the Hubble parameter and the idea of a cosmological redshift. In tomorrow's lecture, to close out the week, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little step back, and actually we're not so much back in time, but forward in time, and review one last time the whole problem of how you measure cosmic distances. Now how you measure cosmic distances on scales where the cosmological principle holds. How do we convert a redshift into a distance? How do we measure the Hubble parameter? I'm going to leave those questions off until tomorrow's lecture. Today I'm going to introduce the basic principles. Now, to remind you from yesterday, Einstein had predicted that the universe should either be expanding or contracting when he applied the cosmological principle to general relativity. The cosmological principle states that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic on very large scales. He was worried by this because when he asked people what the universe was actually doing, and in 1917 that meant the motions of the stars, most of the astronomers in Zurich would have answered, oh, well, it isn't expanding or contracting. There's no systematic motion among the stars, except they're sort of just buzzing around with small motions measured at a few tens of kilometers per second with a few oddballs. But there's no general trend for stars to all rush away from me or be coming towards the Earth. And so from that, Einstein felt that he had to stabilize the universe expansion. He introduced the cosmological constant, and the whole story of yesterday's lecture played out. But Einstein missed a beat. He missed a, a, a wonderful opportunity to basically have made himself even more famous than he actually became, if you can imagine such a thing, by predicting the expansion of the universe from first principles, something nobody expected. But in fact, even by 1914 and up through 1922, the first intimations that there was something funny about the spiral nebulae's motions began to come out in the data. It was only a handful of people working at first, and, and even though the data were there, it didn't really dawn on people that there was a pattern in it. And so what we're going to see today is that sometimes you can have almost all the information you need to reach a stunning conclusion. It's sometimes a matter of just recognizing what's right in front of your face, not so much of digging down. It's not that aha moment so, so much as sort of looking at data and going, hmm, that's funny, and then something interesting comes out of it. So to remind you, Vesto Slipher, who was an astronomer working at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, was posed the problem of measuring the radial velocities using the Doppler effect of various bright spiral nebulae. A Slipher was working with a small telescope. He only had like a 24-inch telescope or so. So he wasn't going to measure the radial velocities of the faintest galaxies around. He was only going to measure sort of the top 25 brightest galaxies visible from the northern hemisphere. And what he found was a great surprise. If you looked at stars, like I said yesterday, if you look at any random 100 stars or pick 25 random stars in the sky, you're not going to find any systematic motions to them. About half will be moving towards you, half will be moving away from you at speeds measured as sort of 10 kilometers per second, few kilometers per second kind of things. What Slipher found was that 21 out of 25 of the spiral galaxies he looked at were moving away systematically. They showed a positive Doppler shift moving their spectral lines to the red part of the spectrum, hence a redshift. Furthermore, the fastest of the galaxies he saw were in excess speeds of 2,000 kilometers a second. That's so much bigger than the motion of any star that something was obviously crazy about this. Slipher didn't fully understand, really, what was going on. He just simply had the observational, the empirical result that the galaxies were different than the stars. The spiral nebulae, excuse me, is what he would call them, were different from the stars. They were systematically moving away from us on average. 21 out of 25 is pretty much an overwhelming majority. Now, 
the bottom line of this is that if you took out as exceptions those four that happen to be moving towards us, one of those, by the way, happens to be Andromeda, the brightest of the spiral nebulae, that there was a systematic trend that galaxies tend to be moving away from the, at least the Milky Way or certainly away from the Sun. This was an odd observation. It wasn't understood at the time, but the data were un unquestionable. It was not like he made a mistake. They really were moving away. They just didn't know why, and the implications of it didn't sink in. Part of the reason for that is remember that in 1914 to 1922, when most of Slipher's work was done, people did not know how to measure the distances to the spiral nebulae. Right? That was work for Hubble later. So even though you could say, oh, look, there's you know, Andromeda, there's M33, there's name your favorite bright spiral nebula, and you could measure its radial velocity. You just simply took a spectrum, you saw the absorption lines of stars, you saw particular absorption lines, and you compared those to the absorption lines of similar stars in our own galaxy. You knew what the wavelength should be. You observe what the wavelength is. The difference, the wavelength is redder, told you the speed. It's a straightforward observation. You don't need to know the distance of the galaxy to derive it. You just, literally, you just observe it. Okay, in 1914, that meant taking a photographic plate through a spectrometer for five nights in a row and stacking them up. It's a very careful observation, but you can do it. The problem was you didn't know the distance, so you didn't know what to make of this data. It was there, it was in front of you, but you couldn't interpret it because you were missing one of the pieces. The piece that was missing was the distances to the galaxies. You wanted to see, well, does this recession velocity depend on anything? If I look at that galaxy over there versus that one, and I measure their recession velocities, why has that one got a bigger recession velocity than that one? Does it have anything to do with the shape of the galaxy, the distance of the galaxy, the mass of the galaxy? What is it? What does it depend on? Well, 1929, Hubble, fresh from his triumph with measuring the distance to Andromeda using Cepheid stars, took on the problem of the distances to the spiral nebulae. And remember, in, at the beginning of the section, section on galaxies, we saw that Hubble showed what the distance to Andromeda galaxy really was by discovering something like half-dozen, ten-odd Cepheid, Cepheid variables in the, in the spiral arms of the disk of Andromeda. By measuring their period, he could compare their apparent brightness to the luminosities of nearby Cepheids, whose period-luminosity relationship was known, and derive a luminosity distance to Andromeda. And he got an answer of about a megaparsec. Now, he made some mistakes in there. He didn't have the right period-luminosity calibration, but the, it was pretty close. The right number turns out to be about 750, 800 kiloparsecs, but showed that it was outside the Milky Way. Hubble then wanted to know, well, what were the distances to the other spiral nebulae? As long as you got one, let's, let's actually go out and get the others. So he measured the distances of 25 relatively bright nearby spiral galaxies. He started out by using the Cepheids in Andromeda and also in certain of the local group galaxies where he could detect Cepheids. M33 is a small spiral galaxy in the local group. It has young star formation regions, which means it's going to have Cepheids. So he was able to estimate the distance to M33 and M31, Andromeda this way, and also was able to then calibrate some secondary indicators of brightness. He looked and saw that Cepheid stars are not the brightest stars in Andromeda. There are a lot brighter stars. And so Hubble made the leap that said, well, if I can measure the brightness of the brightest stars in Andromeda, I already independently know the distance to Andromeda using the Cepheid period luminosity relationship, I should be able to see those bright stars in other galaxies, even where I will not be able to detect the Cepheids because they're too faint at that distance. 
So if I calibrate the brightest stars and then use those as the distance indicators in the more distant galaxies where I cannot see Cepheids. He was using the classic bootstrap method where you calibrate a, a brighter source, a brighter way to measure distances using nearby examples for which you have an independent estimate of distances. So he did this whole process and was able to sort of bootstrap and work his way up. It was very difficult work, finally measuring the distances to about 25 galaxies. And then it occurred to him to look at the data from Slipher as well as his own spectroscopy of the galaxies to measure the recession velocities and ask the question, does the recession velocity depend upon the distance from me? The answer was quite remarkable. He found that the recession velocity gets systematically larger with more distant galaxies. If you look at the recession velocity of a nearby galaxy, it's small. As the galaxy gets further away, the recession velocity gets larger proportional to the distance. Now what he actually tripped across was a systematic expansion of the universe, although Hubble himself did not yet realize that. It was actually for others to point it out to Hubble that he discovered the expansion of the universe. Because Hubble was primarily an astronomer who was a practitioner primarily of the astronomical art. He wasn't as keyed into the physics and the astrophysics at the time, certainly didn't at this time know what relativity was. So he understood there was a systematic recession, that recession velocity got larger with distance, but the little light that came on that said, this is telling us the universe is expanding, had to be pointed out by theoretical astronomers who were involved in the whole study of general relativity, particularly the Belgian Abbe George Lemaitre was one of the people who pointed this out. Now here's an example of what the data look like for recession velocity, this idea that as a galaxy gets further away, its recession velocity gets greater. Some of these are Hubble's galaxies, others are not. These are a series of bright elliptical galaxies. The ver bright ver galaxy in Virgo, in the Ursa Major cluster, the Corona Borealis cluster, the Buotis cluster, that little fuzzball right there, and the Hydra cluster. Now, bright ellipticals are all roughly the same size, not quite, and so you expect as the elliptical galaxy gets further away, it will look physically smaller. And these are all shown at the same scale here. So Virgo is pretty close, so the elliptical galaxy is big and fat. As you move further away, the object looks smaller, just like watching something recede into the distance. So as I go from Virgo through Ursa Major, through Corona Borealis, to Buotis, to Hydra, you can see the elliptical galaxies are getting smaller and smaller. This is a spectrum of that Virgo galaxy. This is actually a modern spectrum taken from Palomar, where this slide was created. And this pair of lines you see here are classic pair of lines that are seen in G, K, G and K stars. In, in normal spectra of G and K stars. It's a pair of lines from ionized calcium. It's called the calcium H and K line. The sun has very strong H and K absorption lines. And you see that pair there, and it's very distinctive. And there's the position marked with the red arrow. The recession velocity that I measure for the Virgo galaxy is, is 1,200 kilometers a second. These bright lines that you see bracketing these spectra on either side are a spectrum of an iron lamp in the telescope to set the zero point of the wavelength scale. So you know what wavelengths you're measuring by comparing it to the spectrum of iron in the laboratory. If you go out and then measure this bright elliptical galaxy in the Ursa Major cluster, you see that same pair of lines, but now where this pair of lines was between these two lines here, the pair of lines has moved a bit to redder wavelengths. The spectrum goes from blue on the left to red on the right. There's that pair of lines, but now the Doppler shift implied is 15,000 kilometers a second. If I go to Corona Borealis, it's a little bit further away, a little bit smaller, 
Now that pair of lines is shifted by an amount equivalent to a Doppler shift of 22,000 kilometers a second. And to make a long story short, by the time I get up to Hydra, notice that these pair of lines have moved from the left blue-hand side of the spectrum all the way up to the right-hand red side of the spectrum. Here, for this Hydra galaxy, the recession velocity is 61,000 kilometers a second. For those of you who can do quick math in your head, that's 20% at the speed of light. Now, notice this pair of, uh, this triplet of iron lines here in the upper left hand, these emission lines, show you what the wavelength is, zero unshifted. So you really do see, as you go from a nearby galaxy to a distant galaxy, the familiar pattern of absorption lines from the stars in that galaxy gets shifted systematically towards the red. If you interpret that as a Doppler shift, you can read off a velocity. This velocity we refer to as the recession velocity. Since this motion is always to the red part of the spectrum, this tells you these galaxies are moving away from us very, very fast, systematically in the sense that as the galaxy gets further away, the recession velocity gets larger proportionally. This is what Hubble's data actually look like for the 1929 paper. There are 29 data points here. I've plotted them in modern versions. This is distance in megaparsecs and recession velocity measured in kilometers a second. Notice that some of these galaxies down here, these four galaxies, lie below zero. These are galaxies that are actually coming towards us. They're blue, sh blue shifted. But as you get to the more distant galaxies in the sample, their velocities on average are, are bigger. They're more than 500 to 1,000 kilometers a second up here at two megaparsecs and so forth down the line. You can eyeball a straight line relationship through this, although it's kind of a, you kind of, kind of work a little bit to see it. It does indeed go through the cloud of points here. If I measure the slope of this line, that gives me the constant proportionality that tells me for any given distance, what should the velocity be that I predict? Up here at two megaparsecs, goes through a thousand and so forth. That's essentially what Hubble's law is. Hubble's law is this line that goes through the data. The 1929 data were very, very suggestive, but he went about collecting more data because it was kind of a ratty diagram. He wanted to get more and more distant galaxies, so he, it took him a couple of years to do this, and he added eight more galaxies. It's very difficult. The finding the recession velocity is the easy part, relatively speaking. It was finding the distances that were so hard, identifying those brightest stars, and also refining his calibration. There's a lot of work. There's a tremendous piece of work in here. The most distant galaxy he added of these new eight went up to recession velocities as high as 20,000 kilometers a second. When he put those additional eight points on his diagram, plus revisions of the distances of the other ones by doing a better job, he got a much tighter relationship. The 1929 data that I just showed you all fit inside that little box down here in the lower left-hand corner. So we went from a maximum recession velocity of about 1,000 kilometers a second all the way up to about 20,000 kilometers a second, and distances that he measured of order a little over 30 megaparsecs. So we really extended the reach of the method. Now you can see a straight line running through that data really does show that this is a very tight relationship. When you have galaxies out at 30 megaparsecs, you do not find 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 kilometer per second recession velocities. It's all up around 20,000 kilometers. The same is true out here. You go out 10 megaparsecs, you don't find things blue shifted, which would be below the axis on this diagram. You don't find them in this corner. It's a very, very strong tight correlation. When you see this kind of strong correlation, that is the distance increases, the velocity increases proportionally, you know you're onto something big. 
The mathematical relationship between distance and recession velocity is called the Hubble law. Hubble's law can be written as follows. The velocity of recession v is equal to a constant, which we now call h naught, Hubble's constant, or the Hubble parameter, times the distance. So v is the recession velocity measured in kilometers per second. You measure it by taking a spectrum of the galaxy and looking at how the spectral lines are shifted relative to no velocity at all. The distance here is the distance measured in megaparsecs. And so the Hubble constant here, this Hubble parameter, measures the expansion rate of the universe. What we're seeing is a systematic expansion of space and time, and the rate at which it expands as you go out in distance is measured by h naught, which has very funny units. It has units of kilometers per second per megaparsec. Now, in words, the way the Hubble law works is the more distant a galaxy, the greater its recession velocity. And since it's directly proportional, that means if a galaxy gets twice as far away, its recession velocity gets twice as big. Now, this really only holds relatively close. If I get further away, the corrections of general relativity to the large-scale curvature of the entire universe of space-time itself have to be taken into account, and the formula gets much more complicated. But relatively nearby, for speeds of around 30, 40, 50,000 kilometers a second, I can actually use this number reasonably well. When the numbers start getting to recession speeds approaching the speed of light, I've got to use a slightly more complicated version of this that takes into account relativity for real. This is an empirical law. An empirical law means that I've actually, this is just basically done by doing a mathematical fit to the data. As pr at, yet, there is no physics behind this. The explanation of that physics was really left to others. Now, the interpretation of this, largely due to Georges Lemaitre and, other, and Willem de Sitter and others, was that Hubble law is a very clear demonstration that the universe is systematically expanding. The more distant a galaxy is, the faster it appears to be moving away from us. And this Hubble parameter is measuring the relative rate of that expansion as measured today in the current, into the current epoch. It could be the rate of expansion has been constant for all time. It may change with time. That depends on the details of how the universe actually evolves. And that's a problem we're going to pick up more next week. There's a couple things. First of all, let me reemphasize this point that the Hubble law at this point is an empirical law. It comes out of the data. It's based only on the data. It isn't derived from first principles at this stage. It's also not an exact law in the sense of the law of gravity or something else. It's a rule of thumb that basically describes an observation in a simple mathematical way. The actual, the actual underlying statement of what you should expect for the recession velocity as a function of distance actually looks different mathematically when you actually do the full formulation of general relativity. In this particular case, what you're looking at is the approximation to the full general relativity form when you're dealing with relatively local distances, and local meaning few tens of megaparsecs up to a couple hundred megaparsecs. To go much beyond that, you have to deviate from the simple formation of the Hubble law and use the full formalism of general relativity to give you the appropriate answer for a particular model of your cosmology, a particular way of describing what the shape of the space-time is and how it's evolved, how it expands in time. That's just sort of a, a detail, but I want to make certain I get that across. It's not, you know, G Hubble's law does not pop out of general relativity. You have to kind of bring it out as an approximation to a much more exact situation. Now, what we're seeing here is very different. This is, was not understood. If you simply saw the Doppler shift, we've all been trained for 
couple hundred years at least, to think of a Doppler shift as telling me motion through space. So I have this Newtonian vision of absolute space and absolute time, and if I see a Doppler shift, I kind of imagine that galaxy kind of cruising through space. In that sense, the Doppler shift, the Hubble law, is utterly unexplicable. Why do... Why does that galaxy 30 megaparsecs away from me know, A, that I'm here, so it be, should be moving exactly away from me? Why isn't it moving away from somebody else? Why am I not seeing galaxies moving every which way? Why is it systematic? And the reason is, this is not motion through space. It's the expansion of space and time itself carrying the galaxies with it. It took a while for people to wrap their head around that. In fact, people still don't get that wrapped around their head correctly. The other thing is, is that there is no center to this motion. We look like we're at the center, but that's only because we're here. My, you know, Xanax the alien living on some galaxy 100 megaparsecs away, looking at the universe and measuring recession velocity and distance would get the same Hubble law, the same Hubble constant, but would say, oh, no, no, I'm the center of the expansion. You're moving away from me at however many, 50,000 kilometers a second. And we'd say, no, 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 Xanax, wrong. No, we're the center. You're moving away from me at 50,000 kilometers a second. Who's right? I have no idea. Neither of us, actually, is right. And the reason is because what's expanding is space and time. So what we're measuring is the recession velocity is not the galaxies moving through space, moving through the Newtonian framework of absolute space. It's the expansion of space and time itself out from under the galaxies and just carries the galaxies along just like they were little bits of beads on the surface of a balloon. So here's what you've got the basic picture of. I have a universe. I've made it a simple spherical point, And I'm sitting here on this white galaxy here. And I look out and I see an elliptical and a, an edge on spiral and a spiral. And I wait two times later the universe is now two times bigger, the galaxies are exactly the same size. They're bound gravitational objects. They don't participate in the expansion locally. It's only on large scales that the space-time is expanded out from underneath them, and they get two times further apart. Now, when I sit here on the white galaxy, I see that those three galaxies have moved apart from me, a factor of two, because the universe is expanded two times. But let's say I'm living over here on the orange galaxy looking out at these three galaxies. What I would see is that galaxy has gotten two times further away, and those other two more distant galaxies have also gotten two times more further away. It looks to me like I'm the center of the expansion and everyone's running away from me. The answer is everyone is running away from everybody else. Now, the analogy of an expanding sphere is not a bad one. In fact, you can see that pretty clearly. I tried this with the camera. It doesn't work too well. This auto-ranging is pretty bad. I got a balloon. I put three galaxies on it, a red galaxy, a blue galaxy, and a yellow galaxy. Okay, so an elliptical, a spiral, and a quasar. They're bound. They're paper. But they can't leave the balloon, right? They're in space-time. So I'm going to do a little, you know, sort of like my rubber sheet analogy. Now it's going to be the latex sheet, just like we had this flat sheet for curved space-time. I've got a curved global space-time of the universe. I look at the distance between these two, and they form a triangle. As I inflate the balloon, the 
two get apart, move apart from each other because they're being carried by the expanding surface of the balloon. They're not moving at all. As respect to the balloon, they're not moving a bit, just as the person in the front row very carefully noticed. But different parts of the balloon are expanding out from other parts, and so they appear to be carried away. Now focus on the yellow dot for a se second. I'm going to run the expansion backwards by letting some air out, because if I blow too much in, I'm going to get a big bang. As it shrinks, the two red and blue galaxies appear to approach the yellow spot. Now let's go the other way, but now fix your attention on the blue spot. The red and yellow spot appear to be moving away. And similarly, if I fix my gaze on the red spot, it appears to be the local center of the expansion. You don't see yourself moving with respect to space because guess what? You're not moving with respect to space on average. The space is stretching out from underneath you and everything is rushing away. So the center is everywhere. The center of the expansion is everywhere. Now I've put this as the surface of a two-dimensional, three-dimensional balloon and I've restricted my model of space-time to be a two-dimensional space. You have to now begin to abstract this into a three-dimensional space that is expanding in all directions. And as I stand at any given location, I see all the different directions expanding away from me. Those positions see me expanding away from them because we're sort of holding ourselves onto this position of space-time, our little local gravity well, and I see the whole thing expanding. So the universe expansion has no center. An odd thing to get your head around. Yes, sir? So, like, if you take the Milky Way galaxy, there is a galactic center. Is sure. Is what we're saying then is that if you take the entire universe, there is no universal center? That's right. There's no center to the universe. There's no center to the universe in space. There is an origin in time. It's not a center in space, it's a center in space-time. Okay, that doesn't sound like an answer, but it is. Right? It means that, well, uh, we're kind of going to get ahead of ourselves a little bit if we go too much into this, because it comes up more when we talk about things in general next week. But what it means is the fact that I look like I'm the center of expansion, all the galaxies appear to be moving away from me, is simply because... Like the analogy of the balloon, it's as if I'm riding on the surface of that balloon. I can't step outside of space-time and look back down on it. I have to ride in space-time. So the analogy of the balloon is I can't give the perspective of leaving the balloon and looking back on space. Because how can I leave space? I have to be somewhere. Ooh, that's kind of a weird thought. Which means I can't look back down on the balloon like I can except mathematically. Okay? So by restricting the universe to be a two-dimensional surface of a three-dimensional balloon, the way you kind of really got to think about the universe is maybe if the universe is intrinsically spherical, where the three-dimensional surface of a four-dimensional balloon, the fourth dimension is time. Okay, that's not much of an explanation either. It gives you some idea of how really hard it was for people to come to grips with what this really meant because it was a completely different way of thinking. You really had to buy into the whole relativistic view of space and time to understand it, because the expansion of the universe is utterly inexplicable otherwise. Any other questions before we double? Yes, ma'am. The question was, how do we figure out that it was the universe expanding and everything else moving away? Part of it was to apply the cosmological principle. 
One aspect of the cosmological principle is homogeneity, meaning that there's nothing special about my location. So why should we just happen to be close to the center of this apparent expansion? That doesn't make any sense. It required people who had the relativistic perspective of space and time who realized that what we're seeing is a general expansion and we're riding, if you will, on the three-dimensional surface of this four-dimensional expansion. Expansion into what? Expansion into time. See, I think of the, universe, the balloon. When I blow up the balloon, I'm inflating into the room. I'm inflating into the third dimension of space. The universe is a three-dimensional surface, a three-dimensional volume expanding in time. That's your fourth dimension. The problem is our eye surfaces are two-dimensional projections of a three-dimensional reality. Time is just simply the psychological sensation that things are happening in different orders. Okay? I can express this easily mathematically. I can't draw a picture for you because, well, unfortunately, I've got a two-dimensional screen. I can't draw four-dimensional things on a two-dimensional screen. I've got one too few dimensions to do that. So we've got to kind of play with these analogies. Think about the universe as the surface of an expanding balloon and you get the right picture. The galaxies don't expand because they're gravitationally bound. The stars are held together by the mutual gravitation, by their mutual curvature of space-time. That's why I don't see Alpha Centauri moving away from me with the universal expansion of space because something can trump the expansion of space and that is local gravity can trump the expansion of space. We live in a local bubble of basically non-expanding space-time. And that's why yesterday when we talked about the cosmological principle, I kept underlining the word on large scales. One of the things that defines what's meant by a large scale is you get on a scale large enough that you're outside where gravitational effects trump the expansion of the universe, trump the physics of the very large global scales. And so it really only was when we learned how to measure distances to the galaxies, which exist at millions of parsecs, rather than stars, which are just tens of parsecs, that we then became sensible of the general expansion of space-time. It required that leap. These are really good questions. We're going to repeat these themes a lot over the next week, so I don't feel bad about moving on. What is the Hubble parameter? What is this h naught? Well, we can measure it experimentally, and I'm simply going to jump forward to the modern measurement. It measures the rate of expansion. If the Hubble constant is large, that means you have a very rapid expansion, if the Hubble constant is small, you have a slow expansion. The current value we have is h naught is 70 plus or minus 7 kilometers per second per megaparsec. That means for every megaparsec in distance you move out through space, you expect there to be a recession velocity of 70 kilometers a second. So if I go out 10 megaparsecs, I expect 10 times 7 or 700 kilometers per second recession velocity. If I go out 1,000 megaparsecs, I would expect 70,000 kilometers per second recession velocity, and so forth. This is particular number here, 70, is the current agreed-upon number. It's based upon a very difficult series of observations using the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Space Telescope was, of course, named in honor of Edwin Hubble because of his discovery of the expansion of the universe. And, in fact, one of the key mission goals of the Hubble Space Telescope when it was launched was to measure the rate of expansion of the universe. So it's kind of a double homage to Hubble, both not only for his work, but an extension of his work to the most accurate way of measuring the expansion of the universe necessary. And what they did with Hubble is very basic. They measured the distances to galaxies by looking for Cepheid variables in those galaxies using the best telescope ever built, namely the HST. 
H naught is really hard to measure. We have been spending the better part of the 20, latter part of the 20th century was expended on measuring the Hubble constant, and we're still at this game. Recession velocities are very easy to measure. You just take a spectrum and measure the Doppler shift, or the apparent Doppler shift. It's the distances, once again, that are the bugaboo. They're the hardest things to measure in astronomy. Furthermore, there's an additional problem, and that some of you may have noticed, local galaxies, some of those local galaxies are blue shifted. That means there are other motions that galaxies undergo. What are those other motions? Mutual orbits around each other because my gravity feels the gravity of a nearby galaxy. The Milky Way and Andromeda, as we saw last week, are orbiting each other. In fact, they may collide if the orbit is on a narrow enough zone. So that means that I'm on a small local scale, I'm still subject to the gravitational binding of the matter around me, and that causes me to move through space. So my entire general global space-time is expanding, but that doesn't mean that things aren't orbiting other things through that space. I can still move through space. And the problem is, to a spectrum, motion is motion. So if I happen to be moving a little bit towards you, towards, or towards the Earth, on an orbital motion, I will take my expansion minus the projection of my orbital motion. If the orbit happens to be carrying the, the galaxy that I'm looking at away from the Earth, the recession velocity I see will be its universal expansion term plus the extra component of its orbital motion. We call that peculiar motion. So that means I've got to observe a large number of galaxies to begin to average out those small local motions. So once again, this idea of locality becoming important to understanding cosmological phenomena, you've got to get on big enough scales that those things can begin to average out. Now here's a modern Hubble diagram, that recession velocity versus distance. Remember the first one I showed, showed distances going out to about 30 megaparsecs and velocities going out to about 2,000, 1,000 kilometers a second. That was Hubble's original diagram. This is now a modern Hubble diagram done by Wendy Friedman and her collaborators at the Carnegie Institute of Washington in Pasadena. Or, I'm sorry, oh, they're going to really hurt me if they hear the podcast. The observatories of the Carnegie Institute of Washington, which is based in Santa Barbara Street in Pasadena, California. Okay. She led the team with the Hubble Space Telescope Key Project to measure the Hubble constant by measuring the distances to a series of galaxies with high-precision radio velocities. These velocities, this bar here, indicates the uncertainty. The uncertainty in this vertical direction is not because it's hard to measure the velocity, it's hard to correct for the additional non-expansion motion due to the orbital motions of the galaxy around its nearby neighbors. And so it gets to be kind of tough, but you can see it's usually constrained to a couple hundred kilometers a second. What's the rotation speed of the sun inside our Milky Way? It's about 220 kilometers a second. What's the motion of the Milky Way with respect to Andromeda? That orbital speed is about 300 kilometers a second. Well, that's a big chunk of this distance here. So in order to get outside the zone where these random orbital motions matter, you have to go to very large distances. And so this is how we measure the Hubble constant locally, because only locally can we measure distances. So it's really tough. That's why we only know it to 10%. Now, we can measure the recession using the Doppler shift. We measure a quantity called z, which is the observed wavelength minus the emitted wavelength divided by the emitted wavelength. When I measure z, what I'm doing is I'm saying, where's that absorption line from the calcium H and K line? Where should it, should it be if it wasn't moving at all? Take that difference and divide by the wavelength at rest, the emitted wavelength, 
and that gives me this quantity z, which is the cosmological redshift. Now, note that this formula looks an awful lot like the Doppler formula we saw in the first week. It's not a Doppler formula per se, because what we're seeing is space and time expanding, not the galaxy actually moving through space. It just looks the same, but it's actually physically different. That's why this stuff is so confusing sometimes. It's expansion of the universe we're measuring with z. Unfortunately, z can get on top of it, the peculiar motions. Now, let's see what that looks like. Here we have our universe represented as a sphere in the upper right-hand corner. Recession velocity is the apparent expansion of this, and we're going to take our point of view as being at the pole of this sphere. And I've got a light wave, which you can just sort of see scribed on the side of the sphere, like that. It starts out as a blue-purple light wave, and as I allow the sphere to expand, first of all, you, the general grid expands, but also the light wave gets stretched along with it from purple through blue through yellow up through red wavelengths. So as the universe expands, because the light has to move through space-time, just like if I drew a light wave on the balloon, it would get stretched as the balloon expands because the light is actually impressed upon the space-time itself. So the fact that as I go further away, the light takes a finite time to reach me between when the light left and when the light arrives, the space-time is stretched out from underneath it, stretching it from blue wavelengths to red. That's why you get a Doppler-like shift, or a so-called cosmological redshift, due to the expansion of the universe. Pile on top of this the, cosmo the non-cosmological redshift, or blue shift, due to the orbital motions, and you see where the problem comes from. This allows me to define a redshift distance. If I use the Hubble law, I can turn the Hubble law around and say distance due to the Hubble law is the observed recession velocity divided by the Hubble constant. What's the observed recession velocity? It's the speed of light c times the observed redshift, z, cosmological redshift, divided by h0. This formula is only valid for relatively nearby galaxies, but it does allow me to measure distances, which is very important. Just by measuring the recession velocity and having calibrated the Hubble constant, I can get the distance. Now, the limitation of a redshift distance is that the Hubble constant is only known to 10%. So it's going to be only as precise as my Hubble constant. The other problem is that random motions of galaxies due to their orbits screws up the measurement of my redshift, of my random velocity. At very large distances, the additional complicating factor is I can't use the Hubble law. I have to use an extended version of the Hubble law, which uses full general relativity. Despite these difficulties, on the very largest scales, the redshift, the cosmological redshift z, is in fact a surrogate for distance. If you measure the redshift, you've measured the effective distance to that galaxy. And so I can use this to make large-scale maps of the universe. Click through this slide just to go right to the picture. This is what I was showing you yesterday. Notice now along this axis here, along the side of the wedge, is the measured redshift, 0.1, and 0.3. That corresponds to, they used 2.5 billion light years, this is almost a gigaparsec out to here. What they're measuring is recession velocities for thousands upon thousands of galaxies, turning that into a cosmological redshift and equating redshift with distance. And that's how you build this map. That's how you get these, these beautiful maps we've been seeing over the last couple of days due to these large-scale redshift surveys is how we actually can pull off this trick. But I'm now exploiting to learn whether the cosmological principle is right by exploiting the fact 
then it actually, the universe expands. We now need to then ask how good are our cosmic distances and what are the details behind this, which we'll talk about tomorrow.